Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 5. That's where we're going to be today. Luke 5, starting with verse 17 and going through uh, verse 26. As you're turning there, before I read the text, just want to ask that we would consider something this morning. This question in particular, what is keeping you from glorifying God? Or if I were to ask it a different way, is there something of which you would say, if I could just have God fix this, then I could glorify him. Sickness or a marital issue or some pervasive sin family crisis, job uncertainty. If I could just have God fix this, then I could glorify him. What I hope is that this morning we will see that the fact that we are forgiven by Jesus Christ is enough. In fact, it's all of the reason we need to glorify him. It's all the reason we need. If we are forgiven, we have enough. And yet I think Often we take forgiveness for granted. So let's go to the text and read. If you wouldn't mind standing with me, Luke chapter 5, starting with verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and led him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, And go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace, your mercy, Lord. We praise you. And Lord, we ask you that you would help in this time, Lord, that by your Spirit, you would come and search our hearts. Lord, bring strength to those who are weak, those who are downcast, bring hope. Lord, for those who do not know you, Lord, bring life. Lord, we praise you for your word. And we ask that your spirit would open our hearts Help us, Lord, to believe. Give us faith to believe. This word is from you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Here's the main thing I want 
us to see this morning. Very simple. Jesus has come to forgive sins. It's the basic teaching of the gospel, right? Jesus has come to forgive sins. And yet often I think we live as if it is not true. And you hear me say that and respond, why do you say that? Why would you say that I live as if it's not true? Of course I believe that Jesus has come to forgive sins. Believe the gospel. I believe that that's why he came. But I would ask you, maybe you have said or maybe you've heard others say something like this. I could never forgive myself for that. I believe that Jesus forgives sins, but I could never forgive myself for doing that. Or or maybe we go outside of our own heart. I could never forgive that person for that. I just don't, there's something about them. I just, just irks me. They had no right to do that for me, and I, I could never forgive them for it. The truth is, the evidence of our belief that Jesus has come to forgive sins is horizontal. If God has forgiven me, how can I not forgive myself or someone else? And so I want to look at three points from the text in hopes that together we will rejoice in the truth that Jesus has come to forgive sins. Three things in light of the text this morning. The first one is this. Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins. Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins. Secondly, Jesus is willing to forgive your sins. And third, Jesus suffered the cost to to forgive your sins. First, Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins. We see as the narrative picks up here, verse 17. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst, into the midst before Jesus. This is an amazing, amazing circumstance. Jesus, and remember we've talked about this, right? The word about Jesus is spreading. People are hearing. Have you heard about this man, Jesus of Nazareth? He's healing and his teaching is, is different. He teaches and, and he has authority in his teaching. And just people are talking about this. Have you heard about this man? He's in town. Jesus of Nazareth has come to town and he heals people. He makes them well. Did you hear? He healed a leper. He put his hands on a leper and cleansed him. And the man was cleansed instantly and so word about Jesus is just going and spreading and here Jesus has come to this place and it says he's in this house teaching and the place was filled there were Pharisees and teachers of the law those were scribes Pharisees scribes there they're coming and listening and trying to evaluate what is this man teaching but not just them it says it was it was filled it was Packed probably beyond the walls of the house. People are gathered together. And we know that because as Jesus is teaching and this this house is filled with people, 
It says that five men approach this house. Four of them are carrying the the fifth on a bed. He's paralyzed. And as they approach the house, there's so many people crowded into the house. They see there's no way we're going to make it through the crowd. We cannot get through the crowd to Jesus. And so what they do is they get up onto the roof. They climb with this guy who's paralyzed on a bed, climb up onto, go up the steps, up to the top of the house and go to the top of the house. And then they begin to dig through the roof of the house, removing tiles and digging down through, making a a hole in the roof of this house big enough for this guy to be lowered on a bed down through the roof into the midst of this entire crowd as Jesus is teaching. And there he's lowered in front of Jesus. Just incredible, right? I mean, what's going on in the minds of the people? First of all, as they're hearing this fantastic, wonderful, authoritative teaching of Jesus and things begin to fall from the ceiling, right? What's going on? And then this hole is is made in the ceiling and then this guy is dropped down in front of them. What are they thinking? It must have been tense, right? I mean, what is he going to do? Maybe some of the people are just like, this is it, right? Maybe they're just like, this is what we were hoping for. This is what we've come to see. He's going to do it. He's going to heal this guy. Watch. He's going to say, get up. And this guy's going to get up. We've seen him do this with other people. We've seen him do this kind of thing. Maybe this is it. Maybe some of them are excited. Maybe some of them are anticipating what's Jesus going to do. Is he going to heal this man or not? Maybe some of them are irritated. That they would interrupt this teaching. They've come to hear this teaching and the things that they've been saying about Jesus. We've never heard anything like this. We've never heard anything with such authority, such power. And here's this man now dropped into the midst of this crowd. Look what Jesus does in response to this circumstance. Verse 20, when he saw, Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, Your sins are forgiven you. Now that had to be the last thing that people are expecting him to say. Maybe get up, but your sins are forgiven you. Like that had to blow. It had to be, you could hear a pen drop in this room, right? No one's expecting, man, your sins are forgiven you. Everyone's anticipating a healing or something, but Jesus pardons this man. And that upsets the religious leaders, it says. Verse 21, the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? If they just would have stopped, right? They just would have stopped with the first three words. Who is this? Who's this man? Who is this? Who's this before us? Who is this who, who would forgive? If they just would have stopped, but instead they accused him of blasphemy. Here's the thing. Guys, they're right. If Jesus isn't God. If Jesus is just an ordinary man, they're absolutely right to be upset. If someone comes in here and says to one of you, man, woman, your sins are forgiven you. And we are to say, who does this person think he is? No one can forgive sins but God alone. That's absolutely true. The the religious leaders are right. 
But what we're going to see in the text is Jesus is God. And therefore, he has authority to forgive sins. And that's what the religious leaders are missing. That's what they're denying. In the midst of all of his teaching, in the midst of him fulfilling all of these Old Testament prophecies about him, that's what they miss. That's what they deny. And so it goes on in verses 22 through 24. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is able to perceive what is going on in these people's minds and hearts as they're whispering to each other or looking at each other or whatever it is there's there's frustration there's tension in the religious leaders and he by the power of the spirit is able to perceive what they're saying and so he questions them why do you doubt me why do you question me why do you doubt that i am who i say that i am and he asked them this question which is easier to you Or which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. Now, we may hear that option, and we might think, well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven you. Because if I say, rise and walk, that demands some evidence right now. If I say to someone, rise and walk, everyone's anticipating something, right? They're anticipating the guy's going to get up and walk. But if he says, rise and walk, and everyone's watching, and the guy goes, I can't. Then it proves that what he said didn't come true. And so we might think, well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because everyone's looking and, whoa, he said your sins are forgiven, but the guy can't say, look, my sins, they're forgiven, right? He can't say that. So we might think that it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, but that's not the point that Jesus is making. The reality is that it is far easier to say, get up and walk than it is to say your sins against an infinitely holy and righteous God are forgiven you. Your sins against the righteous one, the holy one, God, are forgiven, pardoned, wiped away. But, Jesus says, that you may know so that you may know that I have what? I have authority. So that you may know that I have authority on earth. Jesus has the right and the power to forgive sins. That's what he's saying. So that you may know religious leaders, scribes, people. So that you may know. So that you may have confidence that what I am saying is true. I have authority. I have the power. I have the right to forgive sins so that you may know. And he proves it by healing this man of his paralysis. 
Notice what he says there, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That expression, Son of Man, it's the first time in the Gospel of Luke that it's used. It's used uh, over 80 times in the Gospels. Almost 30 times in the Gospel of Luke. This is the first time that it's mentioned in Luke. Of the 80 plus times that it's used in the Gospel, it's used all but two of those times by Jesus referring to himself. The other two times that it's used in the Gospel is used by someone else quoting Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man. So why does he choose this term to refer to himself Throughout the Gospels, why does Jesus consistently refer to himself as son of man? And it comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where it says this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory And a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying, not just here but throughout the gospels, I'm the king. You remember we've been talking in this gospel of Luke. How over and over, this is a theme throughout the gospel account. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is near you. It's among you. The kingdom of God has come in Christ. And here Jesus is saying over and over and over, not just here, but over and over again, as he refers to himself as the son of man, I'm that king. I'm the one. I'm the one to whom has been given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations, languages should serve me. My dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. My kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying, I'm the king. And the king has authority over the kingdom. The king has all authority. To me has been given dominion. Jesus, the son of man, has come And he has authority over the kingdom. And so he says, get up to a paralyzed man. The paralyzed man gets up. And if he says, your sins are forgiven you to someone, then though your sins were as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. He has authority because he is the king Jesus, the Son of Man, has authority to forgive your sins. That brings us to the second thing we're going to look at this morning, and that's this. Jesus is willing to forgive your sins. This is what we want and need to know, right? Okay, Jesus is God and has authority to forgive sins. What I need to know is this. Is he willing? Will he forgive my sins? Is he willing to forgive us our sins? And it's so beautifully displayed in this text. Just think about this man who is coming to Jesus. What does he have to offer? What has he brought to Jesus? Nothing, right? In fact, he's been brought to Jesus. He couldn't couldn't even get himself physically there. He has nothing to offer him. He's nothing to bring to him. And yet he's laid before him having nothing but belief in this one who he's heard about. And Jesus looks at him 
with compassion and says, your sins are forgiven you. I forgive you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the thought of that? What these people are thinking as they hear that. You think of this again in the context of kingdom and kingship. This man and we, like this man, have committed treason against the king. Jesus is king and we have committed treason against him. You think in a a kingdom, particularly in this time, someone commits treason against the kingdom, treason against the king, what happens to that person? They're killed. And that's what we deserve. The wages of sin, Romans tells us, is death. That's what we deserve. That's what this man deserves. As he's brought before the king and his sinfulness, what he deserves is death. He deserves to be killed. But what does the king offer him? He offers him clemency. He offers him pardon. I forgive you. That is an unreal and beautiful picture. I was thinking this morning and and going over the text again and just thinking about in 2 Samuel chapter 9. You know the story about Mephibosheth? Is, is, is David is made king, right? He replaces Saul. Now David is the new king. Saul was the king. David is the new king. Most of Saul's family has been killed in the battle. And, and so David mentions to people on his staff, people in the kingdom there, hey, is there anyone who is yet alive who belongs to Jonathan? Saul's son. And someone speaks up and says, there's one. There's one. His name's Mephibosheth, and he lives at the dump, and he's, a, he, he, he's lame. His, his, his leg was, was mangled when he was younger. He was dropped by someone fleeing from the war and, and couldn't walk. And he says, there's one. It's Mephibosheth. Well, what would happen normally when someone became the new king and they invited in family of the old king? That wasn't a good thing. What would happen was they were going to be killed because you didn't want any competition. You didn't want anyone out there who might rise up to those who loved the old king and might get people behind them to overthrow the throne. And so what would normally happen is they would be killed. But he calls and says, bring him in. Bring in Mephibosheth. And he brings him in. You read this in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Brings him in, Mephibosheth comes in, he's afraid, he's terrified because he knows what happens to family of the former king. And he says, I'm your servant, King David. And David says, no, you're not. You're family now. From here out, you're going to sit at my table. You're going to eat of my food. You're going to be with me day in and day out. You're family now. That is grace, That is grace and it's the picture of us coming to Jesus, deserving death, throwing ourselves at his feet and saying, I'm your servant. And he says, I forgive you. You're my child. You're going to eat with me now. I'm going to eat with you. I'm going to be with you. You're going to be with me forever and ever and ever. He's willing. Jesus is willing to forgive your sins. But how? How does the king pardon us? He's willing to forgive, but how is it possible if God is perfectly holy and perfectly just, how can he forgive us and still be just? How can he do that? And that brings us to point three. 
Jesus suffered the cost to forgive your sins. Jesus suffered the cost to forgive your sins. He has the authority to forgive and he's willing to forgive and he suffered the cost to forgive your sins. The reality is forgiveness costs something. If someone sins against you and you forgive them, what you're saying is, I I bear that cost. Forgiveness is not saying to someone if they slander you or they steal something from you or whatever. Forgiveness is not saying as soon as you make it right, then we'll be okay. Forgiveness is saying, I forgive you and I bear the cost of it. Whatever you did, I forgive you completely. Let the cost be on me. That's forgiveness. You multiply that by infinity when you think of Jesus. For him to pardon us, for God the Father to pardon us, what had to happen was Jesus would suffer the cost of that himself. Because God is just. John the Baptist in John 1, 29 cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was in one sentence there pointing to the goodness of the gospel. That Jesus in coming took the sin of the world by being a lamb that was slaughtered as a sacrifice for our sins. And so this paralyzed man is forgiven And made well because Jesus receives his sins. Jesus is treated on the cross as if he lived like this paralyzed man. Jesus is treated on the cross as if he lived like the leper that he healed earlier in Luke chapter 5. Jesus is treated on the cross like he lived, like the Samaritan woman that Corey talked about last week from John chapter 4. In all of her worldliness, Jesus was treated on the cross as if he had lived that way. He was treated on the cross as if he had lived like you. He was treated on the cross as if he had lived like me. He was treated on the cross as if he were the worst sinner who ever walked the face of the earth. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus, to pardon, to forgive you of your sins, said, I will experience that death. And I will endure the punishment of God's wrath for all of those sins. Your sins and my sins, all of the sins of those who would believe in him. He suffered the cost to forgive your sins. Jesus has the authority to forgive. He's willing to forgive and he suffered the cost to forgive your sins. And so how ought we to respond? How do we respond to this kind of grace? How ought we to respond? We see Two possibilities. We have two options just from our text here. Two options of ways that we can respond. We could respond like the Pharisees. That's one way to respond. We can accuse Jesus of blasphemy. We can, we can call him a liar. We can look and, and look at the testimony. We can hear his word being spoken as we hear the scriptures read. And we can look and we can call him a liar. And we can say no. I don't believe. We could reject him. We could be like the Pharisees. The Pharisees, the the scribes, they were doctrinally sound. They were well studied. 
They had heard Jesus. They knew what he was teaching. They knew about him. They knew that he was healing, although they rejected it and said he was doing it in the power of Satan. They knew what he was doing. Not just that, they knew the Old Testament law. They had studied it. It was was in their heads. They could quote the Old Testament scriptures, but they were not willing to submit to Jesus. They rejected him. They were not willing to embrace the Lord. They called him a liar. So that's one possibility. I would ask you, is that how you've responded? Is that how you're living? Jesus is willing to forgive. If if the Pharisees and the scribes had at that moment bowed before Jesus and said like the leper, if you are willing to, You can make me clean. Jesus would have said, I am willing. Be clean. That's one way we can respond is like the Pharisees. But we see another option here in the passage. We can respond like the paralytic. And we see it in three different ways. First of all, have faith to pursue him. Have faith to pursue God. Verse 18 Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, what do they do? It doesn't say they stopped and said, ah, just forget it. Maybe he'll be in town again sometime. No. Seeing no way to bring him in, they found another way. They, they believed, they believed if we just get to this man, things will be different. And so they go up on the roof and they dig down in. And it says in verse 20, when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Have faith, have faith to pursue him. And secondly, trust him enough to obey. Verse 25, Jesus says, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately He rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. When Jesus says, pick up your bed and go home, the guy could have said, I'm used to this. This is just the way I've always done it. I've always just laid here. People carry me around. This is the way I've done it. I'm just going to stay here. Thank you, though. But he doesn't. Immediately, it says immediately he gets up and he goes glorifying God. In the same way, we've been called by Jesus. If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Follow me. Trust him. Trust him enough to obey him. Have faith to pursue him and trust him enough to obey him. And then third, glorify him. The end of verse 25 there. Glory, he went on his way glorifying God and amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Glorify him. I mentioned earlier how the evidence of our belief that Jesus forgives is horizontal. We forgive because we have been forgiven. We ought to glorify God in that. We have to glorify him as we treat other people the way that we have been treated. The way that we treat others willing to forgive them as a way to glorify God. 
as I'm going along, just as Corey talked about last week with the uh, woman at the well, as she leaves and she goes back to the people who had rejected her. And something has changed. And now these people hearing her message are coming and seeing who is this man and what has happened. As we go along just declaring how great he is, we can glorify him. As we just stand amazed in our hearts as we proclaim praise to him, we glorify him. We ought to glorify God for who he is and what he's done. We have seen, they say, extraordinary things. I love in Mark 1, and in, in, in Mark's account, it says, we never saw anything like this. Isn't that the truth? Who can forgive sins but God alone? We've never experienced anything like this. We've never, we've never known anything like this. This man, this paralyzed man was forgiven and then he was able to walk. He was forgiven and then he was able to walk. It doesn't say it in the text. We don't get this part of it in the text because Jesus does tell him, rise and walk. But I, I believe that if Jesus never said to him, rise and walk, he still would have left glorifying God. Because his deepest need had been met. The answer to his question, if, if, just, if I could just have God do this, then I could glorify him, that was done. His sins were wiped away. Our biggest problem, our greatest enemy is not our outside circumstances. It's our sin. And when Jesus comes and says, I'm willing, be clean, be forgiven, then our obstacle to glorifying him is gone. And from then forward, we can and we ought to glorify him because just like this paralyzed man, we have been made well. Whether the circumstance is cared for or not, this man was made well before he could walk. In the same way, if you've been forgiven, if I've been forgiven, we can. We have every reason to glorify God. Treating our wives, treating our husbands in a way that reflects the willingness of Jesus to forgive. Treating our children in a way that reflects our amazement at God's grace. Treating our neighbors, our classmates, our co-workers in a way that demonstrates that Jesus has authority to forgive and is willing to forgive and paid the cost so that we could be forgiven. It's really why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because of Jesus and because of the pardon that he has offered to us, given to us. In fact, Luke's second letter in Acts chapter 13. He writes this in verses 28 through 30. And though they found in him, Jesus, no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. 
Going forward to verse 38, it says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Forgiveness. We're clean. And so as we take the bread and the cup, that's what we are proclaiming together. Who can forgive sins but God alone? No one. Thank God for Jesus. And just as Paul writes in Romans 7, who can deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so as you hold the bread and hold the cup, remember what they symbolize. Jesus' body was broken. His blood was poured out. Why? For the forgiveness of your sins. If you're here this morning and you don't know him, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What a joy. What a joy. If you're in Christ, what a joy that we can do that together. If you don't yet know him, then just let the bread and the cup pass. This is just, this is our way of one identifying with the body and blood of Jesus we're saying together we believe that God sent his son into this world his body was broken his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins what we would encourage you this morning with is everything that this text has said Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins no matter what you have done. And not just that, he's willing to forgive you of your sins, so much so that he came. Romans 5, 8 says God demonstrated, he proved his love for us, he proved his willingness to us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came and bore that payment. He He willingly took the payment for your sins. So so no no matter how long you've come here, how many times you've come here, if this is your first time or, or 200th time, if you don't know Jesus, then don't just take the bread and the cup that symbolize what he's done. Partake of him today. Believe in him today. If you want to pray, I would love to pray with you. If you're here with family, I know that they would love to pray with you. Come and talk to me. Come and talk to one of the deacons who are here. We would love, we would love to pray with you. And today, for today to be that day where you know for the first time what it means for Jesus to say, I forgive you. Be clean. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace, Lord. Your mercy that you have lavished upon us. We praise you. And we thank you for your word where again and again and again and again and again we see, we behold your grace, the truth that Jesus came to forgive sins. That he has the authority to forgive, that he's willing to forgive, and that he paid the cost, suffered, the cost to forgive us of our sins. And yet, at times, there are some who can hear it and see it again and again and again and respond like the Pharisees, Lord. And I pray if there's anyone here today 
that has responded in that way that today would be different. That today you would shine in their hearts. That it would be you, Lord. By your spirit, you would shine in their hearts. And that they would know that you are saying to them, you are willing. That they would have faith to pursue you. They would trust you enough to obey you. And that today would be the first day that with all of their heart they would glorify you. For those who do know you, Lord, praise you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for the hope. More certain than it was for Mephibosheth, the hope for us that one day we will sit at your table and you will eat with us. We will fellowship with you forever and ever. And so, Lord, as we take and hold the bread and the cup and then partake together, Lord, we praise you for the truth of what it is that we joyfully proclaim together your death, that your body was broken, your blood poured out, and we anticipate your coming, Lord. And even now, we anticipate your presence here with us. And so we praise you and we thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.